0: Matthew 8, verse 14 to 22. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, "'Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go.' And Jesus said to him, "'Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, "'but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head.' Another of the disciples said to him, "'Lord, let me first go and bury my father.' And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead.
1: I think we can all agree that the desire for health is universal. Sick people all over the world want to be well. In most cultures, there's people dedicated to the practice of healing. In Africa, a traditional healer uses different herbs and may consult spirits. A shaman helps with mental disorders. Where I lived in Hong Kong and in Beijing, sick people often chose between Chinese medicine, where the doctor would prepare a remedy made from things like flowers and roots, insects and seahorses, and would sometimes sink multiple needles into a troubled area of the body. Or Western medicine, where the healer would prescribe pills or cut out troubled body parts. Here in Canada, we have universal health care where healing is under such great demand and good health is almost viewed as a basic human right that we have long wait lines and a system increasingly difficult to pay for. Everyone who's sick wants to get better. And it seems we have different ideas about who to trust for our healing. The gospel story tells us unequivocally that Jesus is our healer. And in the passage read earlier, we see something about the ways, his ways in healing. Verses 14 to 17 show us three aspects of Jesus, the healer. First, we see the heart of the healer. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. The story takes place in the city of Capernaum. A few years ago, Joy and I visited that town on the north edge of the Sea of Galilee, and we actually saw what they said was Peter's house right next to the local synagogue. In Mark's gospel, Jesus enters Peter's house after being in that synagogue where he'd cast out a demon out of one of the attendees. Now, casting out the demon was the first miracle in Mark's story, But Matthew doesn't include that story. The first miracles in Matthew's gospel are three healings, a man with leprosy, a Gentile's servant, and a woman. Jesus enters the house, and he sees Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. We don't know if it was low-grade or burning, if she had a slight cold or a deadly infection, All we know is that she had a fever, something that probably all of us have had several times in our lives. She represents all of us, any individual who has ever been sick. But what's important for us to see is Jesus' response. He touched her hand, which could also mean he grasped her hand. Now, it was against the rules of the day for a man to touch another woman's hand, much less grasp it. But Jesus has already shown that he's quite willing to break the rules for the sake of life. This is the third of three miracles, stories that Matthew ties together to show us what Jesus the healer is like. In the first story, he touched and he healed a man with leprosy, someone who was unclean on religious grounds based on the Old Testament law. In the second story, he offered to go to the home of a Gentile, Something that no respectable Jewish rabbi would do. And now here he is touching a woman. Jesus the healer, the one who came to seek and to save the lost, is especially drawn to the marginalized. Around the time of Jesus, there was a scripted prayer for Jewish men. God, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. It's human nature, isn't it, to sideline people with labels? to deem them as lesser for some reason, or maybe to justify our own pride, sometimes to justify our hatred of others. In all of Matthew's stories, Jesus heals by either speaking a word or by touching. When he healed the man with leprosy and then this woman, he did it with a touch. Why did he do that? The very two people he was not supposed to touch were the people that he touched. The very two people that no other Jewish man would have touched were the people that Jesus touched. Now, besides the fact that his touch has the power to heal people, what is Jesus trying to teach us? Now, Pastor Ray asked this question a couple of weeks ago, but it's an important action that bears repeating. Remember, Matthew is written for us disciples to know Jesus better and to know how to follow him better. So I learned from Jesus that no one is untouchable. Are there people that we take wide steps around? (laughs) When I lived in Beijing, there was a beggar who could be found most days outside our local supermarket. He was usually there from morning to night, putting in long hours every day to make a few dollars. His clothes were threadbare, and he looked and smelt like he hadn't had a bath in years. Almost everyone avoided him or pretended not to see him. In the supermarket, they had put up a sign telling people to not give him any money, sort of like the way that we're told to not feed wild animals in our parks. My friends told me that the beggars probably had more money than I did and urged me to not give people like him any. Now, I don't know if that was an urban myth, but I believed them. And I made it a point to avoid him whenever I saw him. He would sometimes come up to me, holding out an empty hand, pointing to what was supposed to be an empty stomach, and say the words, "Pungyo," friend.'" <laughs> Fortunately, I was, I was on to his tricks, and I'd continue on my way. But around that time, I was reading these stories in Matthew and began to realize that this beggar is precisely the kind of person that Jesus would touch. The Spirit challenged me. The next time I saw him, I intentionally walked over to him, and I handed to him one yuan, which was worth about 15 cents at the time. He received it. He smiled. Instantly, I became his best friend. When I'd go to the supermarket after that, he'd say, don't bother locking up your bicycle. I'll watch it for you. He became my bicycle watchman. (laughs) One day, we were standing face-to-face talking. His face was weather-beaten, and his few teeth were black, and I put my hand on his shoulder and blessed him. It was an action that went against my human nature, but it's something that I learned from watching Jesus, and it was from one friend to another. At that moment, I wondered, when was the last time this guy actually had felt the touch of another human being? Was there a bit of healing in the human touch? Can we see the heart of Jesus, the healer, as he touches Peter's mother-in-law and the man with leprosy? He touches those that no one else would touch and cares for the individuals everyone else has given up on. Peter's mother-in-law represents all the individuals in our lives who need Jesus' healing touch. We can bring to him all the parents, the children, the siblings, the friends, All who need his touch and can be assured that there's absolutely no way the healer will reject anyone. Second, we see the scope of the healer. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick, verse 16, where Peter's mother-in-law represents the individual. The many here, we could say, represent the entire world they are the mass of unnamed humanity. Jesus not only touches the feverish mother-in-law, he also knows and understands the masses, the one and the many. We feel the burden of the loved one who is sick, and we feel the burden of a general pandemic. Both are terrible, and we feel helpless in the face of both, but Jesus heals them all. In verse 16, they brought to him the people who were oppressed by demons. And that word is often translated possessed, which suggests ownership. But Satan doesn't really own anyone. Colossians 1 says that all things have been made by Jesus and for Jesus. And I don't think he's ever sold anyone to the devil. The literal word is demonized. And it refers to the fact that people are afflicted in some way by demonic powers. Now we could say that everyone to some extent is demonized and that some are afflicted more than others. We're demonized by addictions and areas where the enemy has gained access in our lives. With a word he healed all who were sick. It's the word of the Lord Jesus, that word that spoke the entire world into existence, that word that says to the raging sea, be still, the word that says to the sinner, your sins are forgiven, the word that's more powerful than a sword. The word of Jesus accomplishes his will. He speaks and it happens. He healed all who were sick. That Greek word, pantas, all feels troubling to us. In the gospel stories, Jesus never fails at a healing. He has a 100% record. Now, we might feel discouraged by that statistic because we never experience it. We see so many people that we pray for get sicker. We've prayed for healing and we've seen loved ones pass away. Does the gospel story promise too much? Why don't we get 100%? I think that a lot of us would be happy with 20% or maybe even 10%. You know, when you hear the doctor's prognosis, you've got a 50% chance of beating this thing. Well, we at least have some optimism. What are we to make of the 100% success rate of Jesus? Now, there's a few ways that Christians have responded to this. The idealists, on one hand, demand the 100% for ourselves. They believe that we should be experiencing what we see in the gospel story, that every sick person we pray for should be healed, and if that doesn't happen, the problem is with us. Either we don't have enough faith, or there's some unconfessed sin and we aren't holy enough, or there's some demonic spirit or family sin that we haven't clearly discerned. I've known idealists who were so committed to a loved one's healing that even after the person died, they claimed that he would be resurrected. And then on the other side are the cessationists. They believe that the healing stories are only for the Bible times and that after the days of Jesus and the apostles, we're no longer to expect miracles of healing. So where the idealists expect everything, the cessationists Will expect nothing. So, which is it, all or nothing? Let me suggest an answer to that question by looking at the next verse. In verse 17, we see the identity of the healer. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, I'm a bit of a word nerd, and I'm intrigued by the original Greek words for illnesses and diseases. The word illness literally means no strength, the thing that causes us to be weak, that makes our strength dissipate. The word diseases is the Greek word nasos, which is where we get our English word nausea from. Now, these words are often used together in the Gospels to describe what is wrong with us, both physically and mentally. In this verse, it says, Jesus took... And he bore these things. He claimed all of our sicknesses in body and mind for himself. He took these things for his own. Matthew quotes, very importantly, from Isaiah 53, that great poem from the Old Testament that pointed to the work of Jesus bearing all of our sin and our sickness in his body. He's the healer in every way. The one who heals every spiritual, mental, and physical affliction he took and he bore these things for people when he was on the earth, and he ultimately took and bore them in his body on the cross. He claimed that our illnesses were no longer ours. Now they are his. (laughs) When I have a fever, that fever belongs to him. When I'm oppressed by the enemy, that oppression belongs to him. When there's a worldwide pandemic, that pandemic belongs to Him. And we accept the gifts of healing that come through the designated healers in our world, but He will not share His glory with another. He alone is the healer. In the Old Testament, God wanted His people to know this about Him. Early in the the story, just after Israel went out from Egypt, God told them this about himself. He said, I am Yahweh Rapha, or the Lord, your healer. And now here's Jesus in the world, God in the flesh, assuming that identity. This God has not changed. This Jesus who is revealed as the healer, the one who will not share his glory with another, is among us. He continues to be who he is, the healer who takes and bears all our infirmities, body and soul. So we continue to seek him, to live in him, to expect from him. But the problem with the 100% is that it doesn't account for the fact of death. You see, every person who Jesus healed, the man with leprosy, the Gentile's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, all of them would eventually die. They were relieved for a little while, but only until they eventually went to the grave. Sickness makes us uncomfortable and decreases the quality of life, but the main problem with illness is death. And no no matter how miraculous a healing may be, even if someone should rise from the dead, that person will eventually die again. The 100% is not some momentary relief from a physical or mental ailment. It's an eternal removal of all the ways we are marked by death and all the afflictions that lead to death. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and and have it to the full. His goal is always complete shalom, full and flourishing life, something that we receive now in part and one day will re- will enjoy fully. It was on the cross, of course, that Jesus ultimately took and bore our decaying bodies and souls. We come always to the crucified Messiah, knowing his identity as the healer, with an expectation for today and an even greater hope for eternity. Now, we can only spend a short time on the second part of our text, verses 18 to 22. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. At this point, Jesus' priority is not to heal the crowds, but to invest in disciples who would carry on his ministry. And in Matthew 8 and 9, the ten stories of Jesus' miraculous power are interwoven with snapshots of discipleship. He hasn't only come to heal people momentarily, but to ultimately call people to follow him more fully. And so here are two stories of would-be disciples. And like Peter's mother-in-law represents sick individuals, and the many sick people represent the entire world, so these two represent different approaches to following Jesus. The first is a scribe, a trained legal expert. Who says to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. This guy is all in, he's fully committed. He's the kind of volunteer we love to have at church. (laughs) The person who says, I will do whatever you need done. He signs up for every missions trip, wants to lead a small group, is at every WSBM class, serves food to the homeless, and is on the worship team and the sound team at the same time. We love this kind of zeal. And Jesus surprisingly responds with a warning. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The scribe was an academic, someone who had good standing in society and could enjoy a pretty comfortable life. And Jesus knew that his zeal would not be enough for true discipleship. When he finds himself needing to sleep for a few nights under a tree with neither pillow nor blanket, his zeal will abate. This first would-be disciple represents those who think too highly of their ability to follow. He's like Peter who said, even if everyone else fall away, I'm willing to die with you. And then a few hours later, Peter denied him three times. The second would-be disciple represents the hesitant follower. Lord, let me first go bury my father. And now it's not, like, not that this guy's father had just died. In fact, he may have had another 20 years ahead of him. But like a good Asian, he had to take responsibility for his parents. And once he had finished that task of caring for his dad through life and ultimately giving him a good burial, he would be free to follow Jesus. And Jesus' words sound harsh follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. (laughs) In other words, don't prioritize anything above me, even the deep family expectations of your dying culture. The zealous disciple needed to question his own zeal and count the cost. The hesitant disciple needed to question his worldly priorities and count the cost. Our zeal can easily get in the way of true discipleship, and the most zealous can easily run ahead of Jesus, and our misplaced priorities can get in the way of true discipleship and constantly need to be reset if we are to to follow Jesus fully. You and I are those kinds of disciples. Some are zealous, some are hesitant, but we only want to be disciples because of what we have seen in Jesus. His teaching and his power are so amazing so otherworldly that we can't help but want to follow him. But we don't trust in our ability to follow. Instead, we keep looking to the one who's worthy to be followed. We look to the one who took our illnesses, who bore our diseases for an eternity. He claimed for himself all that is wrong with us so that he could make all of us right in him. As we conclude today, let's return to this picture of Jesus the healer. One of the ways that God has revealed himself throughout Scripture is he is that. He is the healer, and he wants us to know this about himself, and like all of his attributes, not only to know it in our minds, but to experience in our, in our lives. Let me make two final points. First, to be healed, there needs to be an awareness of not being well. When I was young, we would only go to the doctor if we broke a bone or if we were about to die. If you got sick, you would just tough it out. And I was unconsciously taught to ignore pain, fever, and injury. Then, when I moved to the Chinese world, I would often hear prayer requests for things like a sore arm or dizziness. And my, in my heart, I'd think, what's wrong with these namby pambies? Just get on with it. But I grew to realize that Chinese people are generally more in touch with their bodies than I was. They could sense the warning signs early. And that's the first of these two final points. To experience the healing of Jesus, we need to be aware of our condition. Are we truly aware of our condition, physical, mental, and spiritual? Do we overlook the weaknesses and just get on with it? To experience Jesus the healer, requires that we realize that we are sick in every way. And he's not come to call the righteous, but he's come to call the sick. The second point is more important. God alone is the healer, and he will not give his glory to another. And when I say that, I don't mean that we should avoid those who have special gifts or skills in healing. Some cults and even some Christians refuse to go to the doctor because they think that's a lack of faith in God. But they neglect the fact that it's God who is assigned different roles in the world. For example, I don't trust that God will magically remove the garbage from my home. Each week, I put the bin out for garbage pickup. Whatever agent we consult to help in the healing process, God retains this name healer. And for that reason, we will never idolize human healers, nor will we make health itself an idol, There's currently a lot of discussion about who we should trust regarding COVID-19 and the best way of both understanding and managing the disease. What is the best path for the human race as we pursue healing? And at the risk of oversimplifying things that I don't completely understand, the entire counsel of Scripture is this. Trust Jesus. He is our healer. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you today for the gift of healing that we have received in you, healing for eternity. We thank you for the gift of momentary healings from our illnesses or various illnesses, big and small, over time. And right now, our Lord, we bring before you those in our lives who especially need your healing touch, and we confess over them that you are the healer. And we ask that just like you extended your hand to a man with leprosy and you extended your hand to Peter's mother-in-law, you would extend your hand and place it on the bodies of those that we love, those who are ill, and touch them, great healer of our souls and of our bodies. Into your hands we do commit our lives completely asking for grace to see you better, to know you better as this. In your most holy name we pray. Amen. At this point, there will be a few reflection questions for on the screen, and so I invite you to just take some time and reflect and make a response to this part of God's Word that we've heard today. God bless you.